Anchor is a Spotify-owned company that makes it easy for people to get into podcasting. It's an all-in-one, totally free platform where you record a podcast, host it, distribute it, measure your performance analytics, and find sponsors. It all works in your web browser or through Anchor's mobile app. Give Anchor a try for free at anchor.fm slash mythsandlegends. That's anchor.fm slash mythsandlegends. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the conclusion of the story of Kalavipuik from Estonia. You'll learn all about Epic Hero Summer Camp and about helping your sword get back into dating again. The creature this week is a dragon that can cover an acre in corrosive feces and be calmed by the power of prayer. This is Myths and Legends, episode 150B, Where the Shadows Lie. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on Myths and Legends, we began the story of Kalavipuik, born to a giant named Kalav, and a woman formerly existing as a bird named Linda. Kalav died, and suitors began arriving from far and wide for a chance to impress Linda. She, however, was unimpressed and turned each one of them down. Pretty much all left respectfully, save for one Finnish sorcerer who did the exact opposite and kidnapped Linda. When Kalavi Poigs stormed the sorcerer's house, he found his mother was nowhere to be seen. She had apparently been killed. From there, Kalavi Poig traveled throughout Finland, gained an epic sword with which, after far too many drinks, he killed the child of the smith who made the sword and left for home, where he became the king of the land of Estonia. It was here that he learned the kings have great responsibility, and it was now his responsibility to defend the land against all threats. We catch back up with him today in Finland, again, having chased a troublesome sorcerer and his sons out of Estonia and back across the sea. Kalavipoig woke up on the beach. Hands down, that swim was horrible. There had been a storm on his back the entire time, as in just on him. It seemed fishy, and as Kalavipoig reached to his side, his suspicions were confirmed. His sword was gone. Sitting up straight and looking all around, he noticed the trail leading off into the distance. His sword had apparently been dragged. He brushed himself off, and followed the trail to a stream, or he came across a scrawny wizard dragging the massive sword. It was quite the sight. The sword was almost as big as he was. When the wizard spotted Kalavipoig looking at him, he shrieked, dropped the weapon, and took off running. Kalavipoig rose, stretched out, and went to get his sword. Hey, what's up? Kalavipoig heard as he approached the river. Uh, not a whole lot. Remind me, who is talking to me right now? Kalavipoig said. Oh, the sword. Your sword. You didn't name me, but you could have. Lots of people name their swords. <laughs> yeah, lots of... Wait, how long have you been able to talk? Kalavipoig asked, looking the item up and down. The sword replied, always? He had always been able to talk? He just hadn't because of, you know, the murder. It was at this point that Kalavipoig learned that he had murdered the smith's son, to which he replied that 
that didn't sound like him, to murder somebody after a nice gift. But the sword insisted that Calavipueg had been really, really drunk. And Calavipueg nodded. Okay, yeah, that, that sounded like him. In other news, the sword continued, it actually liked traveling with Calavipueg, but he'd met this nymph, a freshwater deity, if you will, at the bottom of this river. And he was kind of hoping to see how this went. So... So you want to stay and see if you can get with a nymph? Calavipueg finished. Sure, no problem. The sword could stay, but on one condition. He went on a list like four conditions. If a great singer ever came through, the sword was to rise up and sing. If any of Calavipueg's family came through, he was to say hi to them. If Calavipueg himself came back, the sword was to rise up and join him. And if the guy who carried him to this place ever returned, the sword was to rise up and cut his feet off. Both paused awkwardly for a moment, but the deal was made. And so, after a brief goodbye, and thanks for being such a good sword, Calavipueg left his sword, so the sword could see where this whole thing with the nymph would go. At this point, we're going to speed montage through a few chapters of a detour adventure. Calavipoig fights a few demons, finds three immortal sisters held captive in a tower, bests their captor, and plays wingman while introducing them to his cousins. Then, Calavipoig decides that he wants to see the end of the world, as we all do. His family suggests that he commissions a ship that's made not from wood, but from iron and steel. Anything else would obviously burn up under the northern lights and the fire that fringes the edge of the world. Calavipoig listens to their advice, but since he can't do anything halfway, he makes the ship from silver instead. Well, off they sail to the north, stopping off in Finland to battle more sorcerers, because what's a vacation if you don't, before getting caught up in a whirlpool and hooking a whale to escape it. There's also a fun little riddle party with a giant and his daughter who capture them on a jaunt through Lapland in northern Scandinavia. The riddles don't make much sense to me, but I posted them on the website. When Calavipoig answers the giants their riddles three, the daughter puts them in her apron and shakes them out aboard their ship. They exchange a quick goodbye, and Calavipoig and his party set off once again. They sail so far that they pass beyond the sun and the moon, battling not only the bitter cold every second of every day, but the northern lights themselves. Eventually, the crew pushes past, only to find an island full of half-dogmen, which they of course fight. And then, well, then, they decide to go home. News reached them quickly upon their return home and their return to the main storyline. One of Calavipoig's cousins, Olev's, city was under attack. Remember that war that was going on? The whole reason he left home? Yeah, it seemed like everyone was having a bad time. It said that the carnage was so brutal that Calavipoig's horse was a mere stick in a sea of blood, bones, and bits of bad guys up to his neck. The horse, unfortunately, slipped and couldn't find his footing again. He didn't make it. As soon as Calavipoig showed up, though, they began to literally turn the tide of battle. Get it? Because there's a tide of blood. Anyway, they put the enemies of Estonia to flight, and they didn't merely defend their homeland either. No, they decided to go after their attackers. They weren't just going to end this war, they were going to end all wars and forever remove the threat to their homeland. Except, to do that, 
they had to keep going. And so, as the enemy ran in retreat, Kelevipoeg, Olev, and the rest of their cousins took off after them. It was getting late, and Kalavipoig and Co. knew they needed to make their camp for the night. And that was when they saw her. Flames and smoke shot up from the mouth of a nearby cave, illuminating the face of a wizened crone, who beckoned them to sit by the fire and partake in a meal. And since they had never heard this podcast before, they sat. Seriously, don't eat dinner with sinister-looking individuals in the wilderness. Remember Kukulin? It never ends well. Especially if said individual tells you that you can have some porridge. But if a large adult child comes out in the night, don't let him eat all of it. Calibipueg, Olav, and the others laughed. I mean, they just swam through what was left of their enemies. So, yeah, sure. They could probably handle one large adult child. Not inspiring a lot of confidence in the situation, the witch, because she is absolutely a witch, looked toward the setting sun and flinched darting off toward yet another cave, a wolf's den, where she just sat eyeing them from the shadows. Huh, Olive remarked. She she just gonna do that all night? Calavipoeg shrugged. Whatever. As far as threats went, a witch watching you sleep was pretty far down the list. That was like a nice vacation compared to the time he fought the dogmen at the edge of the world. Had he mentioned how he fought the dogmen at the edge of the world? Oh, yep, 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 Olive said holding up his hands. He was going to stop Calavipoik right there. They had all heard about everything. So many times. Let's just eat some suspicious witch porridge in peace, okay? Please? Calavipoik shrugged. Whatever. Their loss. And quickly, before you think you're missing something about the dogmen at the edge of the world, that's pretty much all the text says about it. Calavipoik fought dogmen at the edge of the world. Anyway, not thinking it was strange that the crone was hanging out with the wolves and eyeing them from the shadows, the men decided their watches and settled in. Calavipoig's cousin took the first shift. All was still and calm until something rustled in the trees. The brush parted slightly, and our favorite brand of Northern European mythological boogeyman, the sinister dwarf, stole from the trees. He gripped a golden bell he was wearing around his neck. And, making his best attempt at puppy dog eyes, the dwarf asked if he could possibly have a little bit of the porridge. Please? Disgusted, but I guess not wanting to be rude, the cousin nodded. Sure. Well, you know when you offer someone a small taste of something, but then they open up their mouth wider than you've ever seen a human mouth open and eat like half of the thing? It was like that. The moment the cousin agreed, the dwarf grew as tall as a pine tree and drained the pot before evaporating into a mist. The cousin grimaced, remembering he'd had one job, one. Immediately, he set to work making more stew. And by the time the next watcher woke up, the pot was again full. This whole event really underscores the importance of both clear communication and humility. Because as each hero handed off the watch to the next, they all said it was clear sailing and uneventful. No one mentioned the sinister mythological creature going all Ant-Man and draining the porridge leading to the hero frantically remaking what would become the creature's next dinner during the next watch. It was a mistake everyone made, but no one would admit. Finally, in the last watch before dawn, it was Kalavipoig's turn. Again, the mysterious creature appeared, 
asking for some stew. Not feeling any obligation to be nice, Kalavipoig demanded some collateral for a taste. He pointed to the gold bell around the dwarf's neck. Begrudgingly, the dwarf handed it over, and Kalavipoig playfully patted the little guy on the head. Enjoy the soup, buddy. Except that a playful tap means something different when one party is eight feet tall and more muscle than sense, and the other is three-one on his tippy-toes. The dwarf flew back about 20 feet and found himself lodged in the ground. Hate simmered in his eyes as he didn't try to climb out. He just sunk deeper into the ground, a blue flame licking the sky around him in his stead. Calaviepoig nodded. Huh, problem solved. And he got a sweet bell to boot? He saw this as an absolute win. Continuing his watch, Calaviepoig looked at the hole the dwarf went down. And it wasn't closing back up. As he inched closer, he peered down into the darkness and the flame, and he knew exactly what it was. Porgu. In translations of Estonian mythology, Porgu is called both Hell and Hades in different spots, and it's probably something closer to the Greek notions of Hades, or the Norse realm known as Hell, spelled H-E-L. It appears to be a place where everyone goes, though like Hades and H-E-L Hell, it's not a nice or fun place. It does take the unpleasantness of both and crank it up a few notches, with hints of the Christian hell thrown in. What with the darkness, flame, and demons. Essentially, it's not a place you ever wanted to go. That being said, Calavipueg could not resist. He walked to the edges of the hole, slammed his foot down, and the dirt fell away. It revealed a passageway that, even though it was hemmed in on either side with blue flame, was dark. From a tree above, a raven yelled out to, Hey, buddy, you should sound the bell. Kathleen reached into his pack, producing the dwarf's bell. Sounding it, the path grew dimly lit. He looked back to his sleeping companions. Sure, it was his watch, and a mythological creature had arrived from hell, not one but three times, to steal from them, and the witch was likely still watching them sleep, but yeah, they'd be fine. Decision made, he stepped down into the darkness. We'll see what happens when Kalavipoeg goes down into the underworld, but that will be right after this. As you can probably imagine, heading down into the underworld was not easy. It never is. Nets appeared from nowhere, piling on him one after another, and weighing him down until a helpful frog who lived on the stairs told him to ring the bell again. Instantly, the nets dissolved in smoke. Next, Calaviewpoig found himself stuck in kind of a hellish version of quicksand, when another creature, a crayfish this time, told him to ring the bell. That saved him. He was attacked by a swarm of mosquitoes, when a cricket told him to ring the bell. And if you're thinking that you will be ringing the bell nonstop, and that maybe this is why the dwarf had it around his neck, well, Calaviewpoig caught up to you and put it around his little finger so he might also have constant aid. When he finally made it to the boiling river of pitch that separated Porgu proper from the hallway leading up to it, he found, arrayed on his side of the boiling river, a whole legion of the servants of Sarvik, the prince of Porgu, and the ruler of the underworld. Kalavipueg only laughed. In the text, he says, 
What's this? A swarm of frogs? Which must have been a better burn in those times. I mean, even though it likely hurt the feelings of the frog on the stairs who just helped him, because the demons responded by flinging a storm of spears at the newcomer. In a way, the enemy solved one problem, because, moving fast enough to dodge the spears, Calavipoi grabbed demon after demon and flung them into the pitch, giving himself a nice, screaming walkway across the natural barrier. But wait, what was Calavipoi's endgame here? I know if I found a gateway to hell, I'd probably just keep walking. But I guess a gateway to hell is irresistible to legendary heroes. We aren't initially told why Calavipoig ventured down into the fiery darkness, but his eventual actions show us that it was to defeat evil itself. Sarvik, the Prince of Porgu, the commander of the Infernal Legions, and torturer of souls. That was why Calavipoig made a walkway of screaming stepping stones across the pitch. And that was why he was now sprinting across the plains of Porgu toward the palace in the distance. As the door exploded off its hinges, Calavipoig knew that he was the greatest hero of his age. He was ready for anything, but he was wrong. He stopped, frozen. It was her. It was Linda, his mother. Calavipoig had always hoped he would see her again, but he never dreamed that it would be like this. She was a shade in the house of Sarvik, spinning out a spindle among thousands of other women in the rooms. A tear fell from Calavipoig's eye as he tried to embrace her, but he couldn't. A living man in a shade couldn't interact. He asked if she was okay. He told her he had tried to find her. He had avenged her. He was so sorry he and his brothers had let her be taken. He spent years looking, and he only wanted to talk to her again. Tears were welling up in her own eyes as she smiled. She was speaking, but Calavipoig couldn't hear her. The living couldn't speak with the dead. But she was smiling. Maybe she was okay. Except, her smile evaporated as, trembling, Linda returned to work at her loom. Off in the distance, deep from within the mansion, Calavipoig heard a scraping grow louder and louder until an elderly woman shuffled forth. She asked what the living was doing in the land of the dead. And though I'm not sure what Calavipoig was thinking... I'm not sure he was thinking. He began explaining how he just popped on down during a break from a camping trip and ended up doing what he always did, fighting stuff, and the old woman cut him off. If he was looking for Sarvik, getting back to the plot, come on, he'd have to wait here and have some mead. Sarvik was out doing supernatural demon stuff. He'd be back soon. Well, there was the mead of strength and the mead of weakness. And if it hadn't been for Linda... Calavipoig would have gulped down the meat of weakness instead of switching the cups on Sarvik's mom so that when Sarvik returned, he accidentally drank the meat of weakness. And because apparently they don't need any other incentive than being in the same room together, Calavipoig, the strongest of humans, and Sarvik, the literal devil, began their battle. Their fight lasted seven days and nights. And while I'm sure it was epic and cool at first, it probably grew pretty boring after a few hours for all involved. It wasn't until Linda boldly stood from her spindle, raising her distaff above her head, and spun it ten times before slamming it down on the ground that Calavipoig learned the Mortal Kombat-style finishing move for taking down the devil. Calavipoig lifted Sarvik high above his head, spun him around ten times, and slammed him down on the ground, briefly immobilizing the demon. 
In one fluid motion, Kalavipoig tore off his belt and used it to bind the devil, who raged against it, but was trapped. The battle was over. Kalavipoig had won. Kalavipoig locked the devil up in an iron chamber that Sarvik had likely built for any other reason, and he fastened chains around the demon's neck and arms and rolled a boulder the size of a house over the entrance. He had done it. It seemed he had bested the devil himself with a wrestling match. As Kalavipoig made his way from Porgu, with two sacks of treasure thrown over his back, he paused, looking back at his mother, still sitting at her spindle. He was grateful that, for all they had been through, he was able to see her again. When at last Kalavipoig made it back to the surface, he and his buddies grouped for an epic warrior picnic. Apparently, he had been gone for weeks. The gathered warrior sat and listened as Kalavipoig shared about his week-long fight with the devil. The devil, can you believe it? Now, as you might expect, and the warriors who were just chasing a retreating army before stopping for an impromptu summer camp definitely should have expected, the retreating army wasn't finished. They had run far enough to not only regroup, but bring down all the surrounding nations on Kalavipoig's kingdom of Estonia. It was time to go. After a brief session of summer camp goodbyes all around, Kalavipoig and friends doused their fire and rushed back to the capital of Estonia, arriving just before the city was completely surrounded. Armageddon had begun. This canto of the story, the final canto, is just called Armageddon because to Kalavipoig and his people, it basically was it was utter destruction full of casualties, including nearly all of Kalavipoig's cousins. It said that Kalavipoig grew so thirsty from killing stuff that he drank two whole lakes. And when Armageddon was finally over, Kalavipoig was one of the only ones left standing. He had defended his nation and his people from the enemies that came after them. But now, he was tired and he was alone. His brothers were dead. His mother was dead. Olev was the only family he had left, and so Kalavipoig gave the kingdom of Estonia to him. For himself, he now sought rest. But he wouldn't be allowed to rest, though he trudged off to the farthest corner of the country he could find. A man like Kalavipoig couldn't disappear completely. Adventurers came knocking, seeking epic-style Northern European team-ups, but he turned them down. There were also those who came to kill him, but he shoved them so far into the ground that the only proof they ever existed were the holes their bodies left behind. For Kalavipoig, these events were less of a mortal threat and more like, I don't know, mosquitoes buzzing around his ears. Like, not the worst thing in the world, but all he wanted was to bask in the solitude of his retirement, and they were not making that easy. And so, looking out across his front yard, scattered with holes, and knowing that it was only a matter of time before another bold adventurer or would-be assassin broke the horizon, Kalavipoig realized that he could no longer stay in Estonia. There were still places in this world where a man could be alone, where he could find peace and solitude in the time he had remaining. That very day, he slung a pack over his back and swam north. Passing through Finland, he would continue walking north, walking for days. He passed over to Lapland and find a place just south of the Northern Lights where he could rest without some adventurer popping in. Standing atop a hill in Finland, he narrowed his eyes. He felt like he had 
been here before. Huh. Weird. As he splashed through the stream, he heard a voice and felt the bite. Gotcha, came the voice. Calavipoig dropped into the stream, and the water turned red. He tried to stand, but he no longer had feet. Someone, something, had cut off his legs. Did I do it? Did I do a good job? Came the voice again. Calavipoig wondered what sort of sorcerer, what sort of monster had done this to him. When he remembered that he knew the voice, it was his sword. Yes, it was you. Awesome. You're welcome, by the way, the sword said to its former owner. You're welcome for what? Cutting off my legs? Calavipoig screamed. Uh, yeah, the sword replied. He was only doing what Calavipoig asked. Duh. Calavipoig had to think back. What? No. He wanted the sword to cut off the sorcerer's legs, not his. Why would he ask that? Why would anyone ask that? The sword corrected him. Well, actually, he said to cut off the legs of the person who carried him here. The sorcerer didn't carry him. Calavipoig carried him to this land. The sorcerer dragged him. You're too literal. You just murdered me over semantics. Calavipoig probably didn't shout because he didn't know what the word semantics meant. When you're given orders to cut someone's feet off, you want to follow those orders to the letter. I'm not going to apologize for being good at my job. The sword returned. Hey, also, if you're wondering how things worked out with the nymph, the save the dates are in the mail. Though I guess I can probably check you off the list now. Calavipoig screamed as he dragged himself from the river. From sorcerers and armies, to evil dwarves and the combined might of Porgu, the thing that finally got the mighty hero was not some grand enemy, but his own words. Calavipoig died there, on the edge of the stream. A hero king. Calavipoig blinked awake before the river of boiling pitch and stood to his feet. And then he realized that he had feet. Behind him, a thousand demons piled coals beneath their chains. And when they saw Calavipoig waking up, they started blowing on the coals and heating them until their chains began to melt. Confused, Calavipoig looked around. He squinted, blinded by the light. It was his god, the chief god. Tara, standing before him, Tara told Calavipoig that when he died, the world lost something. Calavipoig nodded, that tracked, that was also true of everyone, but continue. Tara said that Calavipoig would never be happy in eternal comfort and peace living among the gods. He was a warrior, the greatest of warriors, and here was his eternal war. The demons would always be here as would Sarvik, who Calavipoik had imprisoned, but could never kill. So, the underworld would be given to Calavipoik, an eternal war for the eternal warrior. Calavipoik smiled and nodded. In a flash, Tara was gone, but in moments, he was replaced. He was replaced by a shade that was walking up, a shade that was no longer a shade, at least not to Calavipoik. It was Linda, his mother, the reason he had started on this quest in the first place. She was here, and, with tears in their eyes, they embraced for the first time since her disappearance all those years ago. 
the catalyst for his first quest. As Kalavipoeg hugged his mother, he thanked the gods for this moment. That's when he heard it, all around them, the chains of the demons snapping and the creatures snarling. Kalavipoeg stood up straight and grinned. He told his mom he would be right back. He had a job to do, and he jumped into the fray. That's the end of the story of Kalavipoeg, the legendary hero of Estonian mythology, and the titular character of the nation's national epic. As I briefly touched on, there is so much more to the story, and if you found this even remotely interesting, go check it out. It's weird and wonderful. I posted it on our site at mythsandlegends.com. Next week, it's not just a story of someone making a deal with the devil. It is the story of someone making a deal with the devil. The story of Dr. Faust. Well, you'll learn that, surprise, it's a bad idea to make a deal with the devil. If you'd like to support the show, beyond telling somebody about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a Viking drinking horn-shaped coffee mug, which is a plastic coffee mug that's shaped like a Viking horn and hangs off you like a Viking horn, you can get extra stories, ad-free episodes, and source pack ebooks that will scratch that Viking itch without all those weird looks at the office. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Tarasque from French folklore, or Christian folklore, or both. Okay, so in the Bible, there were two sisters and a brother named Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're somewhat prominent figures in the New Testament. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the trio apparently got into a boat and proceeded to get very lost, ending up in ancient world France. Led by God, they converted the people of what would one day be France until they heard the rumors of a monster. Okay, so... Try to keep track of all this, because it's a lot. It was a monster that was half beast and half fish. It was greater than an ox, longer than a horse, with sharp teeth, horns, a head like a lion, a tail like a serpent, and vestigial wings. Apparently, you couldn't kill it by throwing rocks at it, and, in some places, it said that the Tarask could shoot its dung as far as an acre. Fun. Wherever it touched the earth, or wherever its dung touched the earth, it set ablaze. Its mother or father was the biblical Leviathan, a massive sea monster, and its other parent was the Bonacho, the creature that the Taras got its flying feces power from. Because the Bonacho's main trait is being able to expel large amounts of caustic feces to kind of literally cover its escape. Anyway, this creature, with the strength of 12 lions or bears, was enjoying its daily snack of a human man when Martha arrived on the scene. She prayed cast holy water on the beast, and showed him the cross. And it stopped eating a man and stood as still and as gentle as a lamb. Martha then looped a lead around its neck and brought it back to a nearby town. The town is now the French city of Tarascon because the people, after they converted en masse when they heard Martha's preaching, named the town after the monster. The monster is part of their coat of arms. And they have a festival every year telling the story of the monster. But it's not just because of the creature's existence and Martha's miracle of taming it, but because of their massive guilt. When Martha returned to the town with the monster, the people took one look at the docile dragon that, for once, 
was holding in acres worth of caustic feces, and they stabbed it to death. And I don't know. Given that they were all within an acre of the monster, and they had no idea that it was tamed yet, I can't say that I blame them. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. When a home security system is triggered, the police often assume it's a false alarm, but not with Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe has video verification technology that helps police get to the scene up to three and a half times faster, making their average police response time just seven minutes. And 24-7 professional monitoring starts at just $15 a month. Visit simplysafe.com legends to get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. That's simplysafe.com legends. simplysafe.com legends. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.